dark secret place. This radioactivity is coming from Brian Suits on KFI. I would bomb the shit out of him. Dark secret place with Brian Suits on KFI. Hey now, look at that. KFI AM 640 more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here until midnight and uh, Moscow terror or uh, wacky taxi. We'll uh, get to that a little later on. Uh, also, uh, total total missing out of World War II uh, is minus one. Uh, a American pilot missing in 1944 in New Guinea. Buried uh, yesterday in Arlington and a, a really fascinating backstory uh, about, um, you know, with, with the talk with the, the Trump-Kim summit, one of the points that was uh, part of the, four, the fourth point of, of the four-point uh, agreement was that American uh, missing in action confirmed dead. American bodies would be repatriated from North Korea. Uh, back to the U.S. and uh, to put in perspective the number of missing from Korea or Vietnam versus World War II, I, I've I've got some really amazing numbers about that next hour as uh, sort of brought to light with the uh, burial of a uh, American pilot lost in 1944 during World War II. So we'll get to that. <clears throat> uh, also, uh, the uh, events underway right now in Yemen, uh, you're not seeing this in the American news. You have not seen any updates about the the Saudi-Iranian proxy war happening uh, in Yemen. But a French, several French newspapers today, Les, Les Figaro, uh, as well as some others, uh, reporting that French special forces are in combat uh, with Iranian forces in Yemen. We'll, we'll get to that here in uh, just a second. Uh, Tuesday night, Tuesday night at uh, 7 p.m. at the Improv here in Hollywood. Uh, I will be part of We the People, uh, which is comedian Ben Gleib's uh, uh, monthly political thing where he has some some left-wing comedy types and some right-wing comedy types. We sit there on stage and uh, do our comedy stylings. So if you care to come to Hollywood on a Tuesday night and have homeless people fling poo at you or possibly even stab you, um, and you can avoid that, then come to the improv. And uh, I put a link to the tickets on the pinned tweet at Dark Secret Place. Improv's uh, pretty big, huh? That's yeah, it, yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, no, it'll be it'll be fun. And speaking of that, by the way, we had a great crowd, over 100 people at the Dave & Buster's in Carlsbad on Thursday night. So I'll be heading back to San Diego very, very soon. Um, next time, I'll teach you all how to hide your guns from Gavin Newsom. <laughs> oh, we, had a, we had a terrific crowd, huge uh, KFI listeners there at, at uh, Dave and Buster's on Thursday night, and it's a it's a haul for me, but it was worth it. So I can't wait to get back down there. So uh, stay tuned. All right. So <clears throat> much has been written already about the Trump Kim summit. Um, uh, you know, I mean, it's we're 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 barely seventy two hours since Trump has returned from Singapore, and so much has been written uh, and quoted and the whole thing. Uh, Trump clearly has boy lust, has uh, has a bromance going on with Kim Jong-un. And it's really interesting seeing a lot of lefty journalists now, uh, when it comes to Kim Jong-un, uh, now they have uh, had it up to here with his violations of human rights. Um, but here's CNN and uh, Jake Tapper, who, by the way, I'm blocked by Jake Tapper on Twitter. Um, here's uh, CNN with their, their wrap-up of the week. The, the week ending with Trump on open mic um, admiring Kim Jong-un, or did he really? President Trump is closing his week just as he began it, showering Kim Jong-un with praise. He's the head of a country, and I mean he's the strong head. Mm -hmm. Don't let anyone think anything different. Right. He speaks and his people sit up at attention. I want my people to do the right. same. Only when asked today whether he really wished Americans would fall into line like North Koreans are forced to, the president insisted he wasn't serious. I'm kidding. You don't understand. But there is no mistaking the president's you, admiration. You heard him. He, you know, he he said, you know, when Kim is speaking, his people sit up there attentive. I'd like I'd like that. And then then he then he does the I'm kidding. You don't understand sarcasm. Uh, that that bit. 
understand, sir. But there is no mistaking the president's admiration. For- now, here, I'll, I'll, I'll hit it again. When, when asked again, do you do you really admire Kim Jong-un? The president insisted he wasn't serious. I'm kidding. You don't understand, it's sir. Mr. President. But there is no mistaking the president's admiration for strongmen and dictators. He spent much of the week flattering Kim, almost never mentioning his heinous human rights record that includes starving and executing his own people. You know, that's really weird uh, because, this, by the way, this is Jeff Zeleny from uh, from CNN. Uh, that's really weird because I don't recall Jeff Zeleny asking the Obama administration about Iran's human rights record either during the uh, the joint uh, plan of action, uh, Iran nuclear talks in 2012 and 13 and 14. I, I don't recall that at, at, at all. In fact, Jeff Zeleny, as I recall, before he was at CNN, he was uh, the guy at the very first Obama press conference. He's the guy who asked Obama, what is the most magical thing that's happened to you since you moved into the White House? I am not kidding. He asked him, what's the most uh, uh, magical thing about being president? Because this guy was so in love with Obama. But now that it's Trump and now that Trump is the first American president who's met with a North Korean dictator, now that the first thing even resembling progress has been made, maybe, uh, so now the, the criticism, now that what they're left to is that Trump didn't bring up the fact that there's hundreds of thousands of people in gulags in North Korea, which is really weird because Obama never brought it up. Bush never brought it up. Clinton never brought it up. And Clinton had a deal. Clinton had a signed effing deal. Bill Richardson, governor of New Mexico, Madeleine Albright, that hag, that witch, uh, and and Bill Clinton, they had a signed deal with Kim Jong-il. There was not a word about human rights in that. And then, oh, by the way, the North Koreans violated it. Oh, spoiler alert. But not a word about human rights, period, in that. No American president, Republican or Democrat, has ever been this close to a real actual nuclear deal with the North Koreans. And for far, far less, we have signed deals with them and never mentioned their unspeakable human rights record. And by the way, there's not a regime on the face of this earth that's even as close to the uh, industrialization of political prisoners that North Korea has. North Korea, uh, 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 Kim Il-sung, the founder of modern North Korea, or rather the guy that the Soviets appointed after World War II, he's the guy who came up with the three generations policy. If you are overheard at your workplace saying, wow, our economic system sucks. Uh, I sure wish that we could start our own businesses. Not only are you and your wife thrown into prison, but your kids and your parents are, both sets of parents. That's the three generations policy. And and you know what? It's apparently genetically uh, uh, selected out dissent in North Korea. But no one ever talked to Clinton about that. I mean, nobody. And then Bush and Obama were not even close to a deal with uh, North Korea. But so anyway, now when it's Trump, it's, well, there's no mention of his human rights. The, the headline on CNN was something to the akin of uh, Trump makes nights with brutal dictator. <laughs> it's like, okay, we know, but he's got nukes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, remember that time when uh, FDR told Stalin, you know, I'd love to uh, ally with you and fight those Nazis. But, uh, you know, you have a really horrible human rights record there in Russia. So sorry, no can do. You're on your own. Make your own airplanes there, F-Wad. Uh, all right, we'll be back uh, a little more of this uh, and also uh, a, a, a big deal happening in Yemen right now. You're just not seeing it on the American media. We'll get to that. It's the Dark Secret Place. Brian Suits in here until midnight. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. I'm going to father the crap out of that. It's a verb. Stimulating talk. It is the dark secret place. Brian sits in here until midnight. Uh, do not go in that bathroom because I just fathered all over the place. So let it clear out. Light a match. So there, there's some examples of what uh, Jesus Christ is talking about uh, using father. By the way, uh, Incredibles two. Yes, go see it uh, if you're if you're a father or not a father. Uh, still, if you're a fan of the first one, you must see this. It's it is better. It's funnier. And, and you know what's crazy? I've never seen a movie that starts with an apology. The movie, when it, when it rolls, the movie starts 
with Craig T. Nelson, Samuel L. Jackson, and Holly Hunter, uh, and uh, uh, Brad Bird, whatever, uh, apologizing for the 14 years that it took to go from Incredibles to Incredibles 2. That's a 14, <laughs> 14 years. 14 years. They like. had a sure thing, right. home run, a grand slam sequel, and they it took them 14 years because they had other things. They had Nemo. They had... Uh, Toy Story 3, you know, more stuff. It took them 14 years uh, of, you know, and people were clamoring for it. They finally got it out there, but I've never seen that. Pixar, the the stars who, you know, they're not in charge of making the movie. They just voice right, it. Right. But they apologize to the audience that it took so long. Uh, and it was funny because when, when, they, when they said 14 years, my daughter went, because, oh, I mean, in, in other words, she was born before the movie, I mean, after the movie came out. And it, and and we just refreshed her memory with it the other night, and, uh, and it was just funny. But go see it; great, great uh, Father's Day uh, activity uh, is Incredibles uh, too. Great family movie, and that's that is by the way. After you wake up in the morning, have your coffee, and then go do a father, uh, and and clean up and lock the door, and do not forget to turn on the fan. Well, uh, America's first father, the president of the United States, uh, as I say, uh, now back uh, and, and in, in the wake of what, you know, as, as I told you last Saturday, no matter what happened in Singapore, it was going to be declared a success. This is how these things work, simply how they work. There, there's no actual formal written signed thing. There was a memorandum of understanding, but it's not legally binding. It's not a real treaty. It was four points. Uh, and one of them, the point about nuclear weapons, is probably one of the most ambiguous things you could you could ever read uh, in uh, international relations. It in no way, shape, or form obligates North Korea to dismantle their nuclear weapons. But then again, they weren't offering that anyway. But uh, you know, this the entire thing, and and just like the Iran nuclear deal, um, it. it was put at the feet of the American voter by the Obama administration. That was supposed to get uh, Hillary Clinton or John Kerry uh, or somebody um, uh, elected. You know this this deal. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm this is how cynical I am about this. Uh, if Obama had done this, if Bush had done this, I'd be saying the same thing. The North Koreans have no intent to actually accomplish or, or, or do what's called CVID, complete, verifiable, irreversible dismantlement. Not denuclearization, like the Secretary of State was saying, but dismantlement. They have no intention of doing that, none whatsoever. This will come out in, in the, uh, the, the ongoing uh, negotiations between now and 2020. And Mike Pompeo flat out said he wants to see the North Koreans, quote, denuclearize, close quote, by 2020. Um, they're not going to, and they couldn't anyway. They couldn't in a in a complete verifiable way, uh, because what it literally means is that the North Koreans would have to go into their uh, their missile assembly facilities, cut I beams down, absolutely destroy the things down to the concrete pads, and then blast the pads. Okay, and utterly destroy facilities. Don't don't just cut down the buildings or leave the windows open or whatever. But I mean, literally destroy the stuff, the launching pads, everything. They have dozens and dozens and dozens of facilities uh, th that they spread throughout the country for the construction of missiles, the construction of warheads, the testing of missiles, testing of warheads, testing of rocket engines, engine stands, etc. And they can't do it by 2020, not without our assistance or not without uh, cruise missiles, not without the U.S. Air Force. Um, and so uh, I know what this is, uh, and this is uh, something aimed at the voters of Ohio and Michigan uh, to, to reelect President Trump. Any president would do this. Any Democrat or Republican would do this. this I'm, I'm under no illusions that this really is somehow reducing the, uh, the physical threat of North Korean nuclear missiles. Uh, however, it's undeniable for the for the the, the people that are screaming uh, at Trump about this. It's it's undeniable that Kim talking to Trump and developing a personal relationship is way 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 better than not talking to Trump or throwing threats back and forth. Like remember a year ago we were weeks away from nuclear war. Okay, uh, well now clearly that that's not the case. Trump has a relationship with Kim Jong Un. Obama didn't, uh, Bush didn't, uh, with, with Kim Jong-il. 
So I'll, I give credit where credit's due. I, I feel far better about the situation we're in now uh, than before, but I still am here to tell you it's going to wind up with North Korea uh, and the United States accepting a certain level of North Korean uh, nuclear weapons in their possession, and it'll be verifiable or whatever. They're, they're not getting rid of their nukes. Uh, what is going on in Yemen? French special forces evidently in direct combat with Iranians? Question mark. Uh, Nespa, right after this, it is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here until midnight. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. AM640 more stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here until midnight. And on the other side of the world, um, not the Asian side, uh, which we, you know, spent pretty much most of the week uh, talking about. And we're sort of in the lee of that in the wake. So we'll, uh, we'll stand by, wait for the announcement of the next meeting and more details and things like that. But, uh, but anyway, so we'll, uh, I, I I do I got to say I do agree that what Trump said that you're safer now than you were before he met with Kim that's probably undeniable that Kim looks like a guy who responds to personal relationships there's no question that Trump does uh, and so if the personal relationship ends up with with us cutting a deal instead of Trump getting rolled. Uh, by Kim, then uh, then I'm fine by that. Meanwhile, there's Vladimir Putin over there with uh, the World Cup happening in Russia. Uh, so uh, just to give you the quick backstory, you you recall uh, now going on uh, about three years or uh, two years, a little more than two years, the Houthi militia, which is not a religious sect um, uh, and uh, not a not a dance crew. But, but rather a militia that was organized by one of Yemen's mountain tribes by uh, a, a tribal leader and family named Houthi, uh, overthrew the extremely American-friendly uh, president of Yemen, uh, of Yemen, so friendly, in fact, that, uh, that American forces were physically based in Yemen as we were chasing uh, al-Qaeda, rather than flying from Djibouti across the water. The, um, the regime in Yemen was so friendly towards us that we had bases there. And we're doing quite well against al-Qaeda. But the Houthi militia had a longstanding beef with the uh, Yemeni government. They, uh, they rolled to Sana'a, the capital, overthrew the government. Uh, the American forces had to leave Tout Suite. Uh, you know, and, and remember there were those stories about the American Marines had to leave their weapons at the airport and all that. You know, keep in mind the Houthi militia uh, um, didn't capture them. Uh, and so this has been ongoing now for, for over two years um, because of the, sp the particular shade of Islam that the Houthis uh, follow. The Iranians have been sympathetic towards them and have been supporting them. And to be perfectly honest, if the Houthis were Jews, okay, the Iranians would still be providing with missiles because they hate the Saudis slightly more than they hate uh, Israel. Um, so keeping in mind that Yemen borders uh, Saudi Arabia there at the southern end of the Arabian Peninsula, the, the Saudis were very friendly with that Yemeni government as well. They don't like the Houthi militia. They certainly don't like them overthrowing that government in Yemen. So the Saudis have been at war now for, uh, for two years with American support, American air, air refueling, intelligence support, what's called ISR, uh, intelligence surveillance uh, and uh, reconnaissance of the battlefield. Um, and the, the Saudis have, have prosecuted a, a very, very brutal war against population centers where the Houthis uh, rule, uh, as well as uh, villages sympathetic to the Houthis. The Saudis have not done very well on the ground. Uh, they've, they've had their asses handed to them several times. So here's the short version. <clears throat> In the two-plus years they've been fighting, uh, uh, the Iranian-backed and sometimes uh, actual Iranians on the ground— uh, in Yemen, the the Saudis have never coordinated uh, the uh, the Gulf ground forces that are there with them in the form of uh, military forces from Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, the the Emiratis have a very very well funded military. They they pay top dollar for mercenaries. Um, a lot of their ground force guys are Filipinos, Pakistanis, etc. But they, they, they fight well, they're equipped well, you know, et cetera. 
Well, the the Houthis have control of one port, okay, and it's a port of Hudaydah. Hudaydah is a city of about 800,000. And the Saudis and their allies, the Emirates, et cetera, have surrounded the town and have attempted to land amphibiously. Ports matter. By the way, this goes back 40,000 years. It's funny how in, in the age of autonomous drones, uh, artificial intelligence, ground combat vehicles and things, things like that, some things are immovable. One of them is that ports matter. How do the Iranians get these missiles that the Houthis have been shooting at Saudi Arabia? How do they get them to Yemen? Well, in a port, the port of Hudaydah. And I know you're saying, well, why don't you just uh, besiege the port? Uh, well, because if you look at the ship tracking systems, like look at look at uh, 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 live ship or shiptracking.org or any of those, it, it looks like ants going through a funnel in the Red Sea. Coming from the Indian Ocean to the Red Sea, going up to the Suez Canal and coming down, there's hundreds of ships in this entire area. The U.S. Navy couldn't do it. Saudis couldn't do it. Egyptians couldn't do it. Nobody can do it. Uh, there's so many tiny ships that don't even show up on tracking. So that's how the Iranians have been getting uh, missiles there. Well, so the word is that uh, today, according to some French newspapers, that French special forces are on the ground um, fighting directly against Iranians in, in Yemen uh, and taking this port city. And if this port city is taken, then effectively the, Sa the Saudis eventually are going to win this particular war. It's the reason we won the Civil War, by the way. I don't know what you were taught. But the reality is that the Union cut off the South. The South had robust trade with England and France. But by cutting them off, we, the South had to rely on themselves, and they had nothing to rely on. The South made nothing but cotton and corn and pigs. Okay, So that's why we won the Civil War. Uh, this is why the Saudis are trying after two years to finally do something and they're doing it with apparently French assistance. But but wait, there's more. Uh, the USS Wasp, which is a helicopter carrier, uh, is there in the Red Sea as well, providing support uh, to the Saudis. You know things are going sideways when the white SUVs with UN on the doors haul ass. The UN left the town about three days ago. Uh, and so it looks like the Saudis are attempting an endgame there. And, and as you've heard me say over the past five years, this is all one war. From, from Syria to Gaza to Libya to Yemen, uh, this, this is Saudi Arabia and the Sunni fighting the Iranians and anything that even remotely appears Shia, uh, which is what's happening in, in, uh, in Yemen. So uh, this, this is the, the least covered significant conflict uh, in the world. All right, uh, when we come back, uh, an, another negotiation happening between South Korea and North Korea. Very much under the radar. Uh, wait till you hear about this. It's a dark secret place. Brian Suits uh, in here until midnight. KFI M640. More stimulating talk. KFI AM640. More stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian Suits uh, in here until midnight. Next hour, a American pilot missing since 1944 has been found. And he's dead. Uh, he was buried. I will. Uh, I'll tell you that that story and and the fascinating story of the thousands of uh, U.S. Uh, war dead from World War II that are missing, and the, the scale of that compared to wars since World War II. Uh, it's it's uh, it's really really fascinating. Well, um, South Korea, you know, of course, was not part of the uh, summit. Earlier this week, it was U.S. North Korea. The uh, the South Koreans had already, of course, uh, President Moon meeting privately with Kim Jong Un on his own, you know, a few weeks ago. But the South Koreans are taking advantage of the warming in relations to ask something uh, at the retail end, the the very actual real retail end on the Korean Peninsula that might make a uh, a, a big difference, might go a long way to uh, lowering tensions between North Korea and South Korea. And the South, what the South Koreans asked of the North Koreans was this. Can you maybe move your long-range artillery uh, maybe 40 kilometers north, you know, about, about 28 miles north? Um, this, for the uh, North Koreans, uh, is something that they've never offered and they've never thought about. Uh, South Korea proposed that North Korea move its long-range artillery away from the heavily fortified border area 
in an effort to reduce tensions uh, during last week's rare cross-border military talks. Uh, during the Singapore summit, uh, there was a military-to-military summit between South Korea and North Korea. And it was not about nuclear stuff or anti-ballistic missile stuff. Not, nothing that South Korea can't control, basically. But it was about things that South Korea could control. Uh, during Thursday's general grade meeting, the first in more than a decade, Seoul made a series of suggestions, including relocating the, the artillery pieces to areas 30 to 40 kilometers north, away from the uh, military demarcation line, the MDL separating the two Koreas, what we call the DMZ, but the South Koreans call it the MDL. Uh, the two sides held the talks following up the uh, Panmunjom Declaration from April, April 27th, um, which called for both sides to make joint efforts to alleviate military tensions and, quote, practically eliminate the danger of war, close quote. And it, it means everything from, uh, uh, you know, uh, limiting the amount of ammunition that the guys patrolling the border are carrying on both sides. You know, of course, uh, you know, n nearly a year ago, there was that North Korean soldier uh, who drove into South Korea in the Jeep uh, and he was pursued and shot at by North Korean border guards, uh, who, one of whom actually stepped into South Korea to take his shots. Uh, the a source said, a South Korean source said, quote, we conveyed our position to the North that in light of consultations between the North and the United States over the denuclearization issue, we have to craft measures to drastically reduce military tensions. I, um, uh, uh, I understand that the South suggested moving the North's artillery uh, that threatens the Seoul metropolitan area to rear areas so as to actively implement, uh, pardon me, implement the declaration. So that you know, uh, what the North have are they have artillery pieces uh, that are decades old. And uh, even though uh, any army on Earth would say, well, those are obsolete, for the North Koreans, they're not obsolete because they don't ask of them uh, anything but one thing. And that is uh, fire out of this tunnel towards Seoul. Uh, until you were blown up by an American smart bomb. So the, the North Koreans never actually retire any pieces of artillery. They just drive them down to their firing positions north of the DMZ uh, where they are hidden in tunnels. And the firing solution, the the, the declination and elevation, uh, the, uh, the azimuth and elevation uh, for each piece has been worked on for decades, literally for decades, the math problem uh, of getting an artillery piece uh, around out of a tube hitting a particular target has been worked on by the North Koreans since the 50s. That uh, they, they sit there and they have Seoul divided up so that the artillery are not duplicating effort uh, and the artillery pieces themselves are destructive enough the North Koreans also have long-range rockets, and the North Koreans will annually do these very, very impressive, sexy uh, rocket live fires. Uh, and the, the point of artillery rockets is that they fire in salvos. They fire in ripples or one by one, and they fire very quickly. They carry a huge warhead. Uh, they can fly very, very far. They're not very precise. They are a area weapon. But if you're shooting at Seoul, you know, you're not exactly shooting at the uh, the Apple store on the corner of, uh, of you know, Gangnam Style and 20th Street or whatever. Uh, you're just hitting Seoul. And the, the South Koreans have been living under this uh, specter, you know, for decades. So the, the North Koreans are going to take that into consideration. The reason that they probably wouldn't do it, that by the way, the total number... 14,100 artillery pieces, meaning 14,100 tubes. Uh, so that means, uh, you know, 14,100 rounds can be fired, let's say, once or twice a minute at Seoul. Uh, then, oh, by the way, 5,500 multiple rocket launchers um, that are within uh, range of Seoul. Uh, Pyongyang is known to possess a variety of, of larger rocket systems, 240-millimeter uh, uh, rocket launchers, uh, with longer range, bigger warheads. I mean, it's it, and also 300 millimeter rocket launchers. The, rocket launchers is something that uh, the the U.S. military has basically with one system, the multiple launch rocket system, the MLRS. Uh, for Warsaw Pact, uh, uh, sort of modeled armies, the Russians, uh, the Chinese, the North Koreans, 
they rely on rocket artillery uh, big time because you can drive quickly to a firing position. You can unload 20 ginormous rockets. They will land within a mile of each other. Uh, what, they, what they don't destroy, they, they terrify the crap out of. And you can reload them pretty quickly somewhere else. So the, the North Koreans rely on these. And the South Koreans know this. They're terrified of them. Uh, and uh, so anyway, they're, this is uh, obviously a priority for the uh, South Koreans. The North Koreans know this. And so this is a very real measurement, by the way. If the uh, North Koreans uh, you know, actually uh, make a move on this and move just a tiny part of that, that's pretty significant. So, uh, so anyway. All right, next hour, uh, terror in Moscow, or was it just a sleepy taxi driver? Uh, that and more coming up. It is the Dark Secret Place, hour number two, coming up right after this, KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It is hour number two of the Dark Secret Place. Welcome back. Brian Suits in here until uh, midnight and on Tuesday night, the uh, 19th, at uh, the Improv here in Hollywood, at the Hollywood Improv. Uh, I'll be one of the guests at We the People, uh, and uh, this is uh, comedian Ben Gleib's uh, monthly thing. It's a political discussion uh, with uh, with funny people, with a pair of, pair of flaming liberals and then a, a pair of uh, flaming conservatives. Uh, and so it's uh, right there in Hollywood. I know that's a complete pain in the ass, and there's people throwing their feces in the street and uh, insane people stabbing you and the whole thing. But if you are uh, up up for a hoot and uh, and a shot of booze, then come to the Hollywood Improv on Tuesday night. And I uh, tweeted out a link to the tickets. Uh, it's the pinned tweet there at Dark Secret Place on the Twitter machine. I'll put it up on the KFI, uh, Dark Secret Place Facebook page, and uh, that will be fun. And I'll see you out there on uh, Tuesday night. Uh, so, uh, anywho, um, well, let me just cut to the chase on Afghanistan. Um, things aren't doing too horribly great there. Uh, the U.S. role changed, um, and it was really a sea change during the Obama administration as we pulled large formations of combat uh, units out. I mean, you, you know, units uh, uh, that were tasked uh, and, and organized as combat units, infantry battalions and brigades. As we pulled those out of Afghanistan from, from their co actual combat mission and began replacing them with units that were not doing their own organic combat missions, but rather going there to train and advise, sort of doing a reverse Vietnam, um, then uh, the, the Taliban have been making inroads ever since. And you, you recall last week I was telling you that the, the Afghan government um, have announced a unilateral ceasefire uh, for the end of Ramadan, uh, which is coming up, the uh, the Eid al-Fitr, uh, the uh, the Taliban have decided to uh, go ahead and reciprocate and uh, and promise uh, a ceasefire as well. But uh, but but in the meantime, uh, on the ground, it's almost as if NATO is not there anymore. Um, you know, again, it is a NATO mission. The uh, International Security Assistance Force, ISAF, ISAF, or as as Americans call it, I saw Americans fighting. Um, the the rest of NATO have uh, really toned down their commitment, and we're not even pushing them on the commitment uh, anymore. It really is a backwater, uh, and uh, oddly enough, we have more combat power aimed at Syria which is a non-mission. You know, this is a mission that's not actually supposed to exist. But uh, we have more combat power uh, in Syria, uh, backing up the Syrian defense forces and the Syrian Kurds. Uh, we, we have artillery on the ground with very, very loose rules of engagement, uh, you know, fighting a war the way it should be fought, frankly, on the ground there in Syria. Meanwhile, in Afghanistan, American forces, besides air power, are really not going out in the field uh, and, and fighting. We have less than 20,000 Americans in Afghanistan, 
Um, and you know, we we barely uh, cracked a hundred thousand once, like back in two thousand six. Uh, but so anyway, the security situation has taken a complete nosedive. And sixty minutes about a week ago, uh, did a story on this. Larry Logan, the uh, uh, sixty minutes reporter, who oh, I've got a tremendous amount of respect for. Uh, she's, she's been a, a really good conflict reporter. And in fact, in fact, she's been the subject of a conflict herself with a, uh, a, a time, a time magazine reporter and Lara Logan's current husband, who's a British uh, special forces veteran. They got into a very public fight in the lobby of the Rashid Hilton in Baghdad in 2004, but never mind that. Um, I'm sure they're very happy now. Um, so she spent so much time in Kabul earlier, uh, in the two thousands that, uh, she, uh, she knows the town really, really well. Well, 60 minutes took a crew back and, uh, on 60 minutes overtime, they, uh, were, were talking about a, a part of the story that they really kind of, uh, glossed over early on in, in the piece. And the part of the story was the fact that the security situation in, Kabul is so bad that in order to get to the American NATO compound from the airport, you no longer take a two-mile armored convoy uh, drive into the green zone. You now have to helicopter. You helicopter two miles from the Kabul airport into the NATO compound. Here's the uh, 60 Minutes piece from uh, about about a week and a half ago. One of the most frustrating things about doing this story was that we felt like we were looking at Kabul through a drinking straw. You only could see this because the security situation was so dicey. I'm Guy Campanile. I'm one of the producers that worked this week on our story about Afghanistan. What made us go back this time was something we heard, that U.S. personnel, military and diplomats, were required to fly the short distance between the airport and U.S. NATO headquarters in central Kabul. It's a distance of only two miles. We went up, we went over, and we went down. Literally, you're in the air for five minutes or less. That's, uh, that's stunning. And um, having lived in Kabul and spent so many years there, um, I couldn't believe that that was the case. I mean, I used to, I used to ride on the back of a motorbike around that city. And, um, and now um, our own soldiers and diplomats can't use the roads. That's something you want to understand better, and you have to see it for yourself. So it's, it's really hard to come up with something uh, probably more, more uh, uh, you know, uh, fitting and not a metaphor for what's going on in, in Afghanistan. The, the fact that NATO cannot secure the road from the airport into the green zone in Kabul where all the foreigners come and especially the, the military NATO people. So, so, uh, so anyway, in case you're wondering how Afghanistan's going, that's how Af- Afghanistan is going uh, on, on another side note, by the way, uh, the Saudis are funding a Al Qaeda affiliated terrorist group uh, in the Western uh, edge of Afghanistan to uh, begin a low-level insurgency against the Iranians, and they've been kidnapping Iranian border guards. Uh, and and this is all, by the way, this is sort of turning Yemen back on its head up against the Iranians. The Iranians, you know, are are helping the Houthi militia, like we were talking about last last hour. So the Saudis have uh, set up a a Al Qaeda Al Qaeda linked. A terror group in Afghanistan, knowing full well that that uh, you know the the Afghan uh, Taliban are Sunni uh, Muslims, and they're they're not going to fight very actively against a terror group based on on Sunni or Wahhabist Islam. So the Saudis have set up a fake terror group, and they're fighting a low level insurgency against the Iranians on Iranian soil. So this is this is what the uh, the Saudis have done. Um, and they have a, uh, they currently have a, a border guard. They put on video today. Uh, they, they put this poor guy on video, this Iranian guy, he said his name, the Iranian authorities agreed that it's him. Uh, and he said in his own words that he'll be beheaded in a few days. Um, and there, it's not, it's not really 
clear what the uh, terror group wants for his life. But uh, so anyway, that's that's what's happening on the uh, Afghan-Iranian border. Uh, meanwhile, Afghanistan uh, continues to be uh, more and more unstable. The Taliban are just waiting for NATO to leave. Not just NATO, but really our A-10s. That's really what they're waiting for. Uh, all right, when we come back, uh, a terror attack in Moscow, or was it just a, uh, a really bad uh, bad driving cabbie? That and more coming up. It's the Dark Secret Place. Brian sits in here with uh, everything happening in the world right after this on KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Michael Chappay with the news. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian sits in here until... Uh, midnight, we'll get to the uh, terror attack in Moscow, or was it, um, in, uh, here in the next break. So we're finding out more from the, uh, the newspaper of record in Singapore, the Straits Times. is You know, obviously this is a big deal in, uh, in, in Singapore, uh, the, uh, the U.S.-North uh, Korean summit. And so uh, they're still sort of in the glow of the entire world's attention. Uh, on them, and so we're we're getting a lot of backstory about the summit, and a story that they put up uh, today in Singapore. Uh, the headline is "Trump nearly upends Singapore summit with abrupt changes," according to the Washington Post. Uh, the story says some of the most intense drama surrounding President Donald Trump's summit with North Korean leader Kim Jong Un came not across the negotiating table, but in the days and hours leading up to Tuesday's historic meeting, a behind-the-scenes flurry of commotion prompted by Mr. Trump himself. Uh, after arriving in Singapore on Sunday, an antsy and bored Mr. Trump urged his aides to demand that the meeting with Mr. Kim be pushed up by a day to Monday. Remember, it was supposed to be, it was, it was uh, set for June 12th, Singapore time, uh, the president got there early, as you always do for summits and things like that, and he was just sitting on his ass, wondering, you know, why are we sticking to this idiotic schedule? Well, because the schedule's not idiotic. I mean, the thing was thrown together in, uh, you know, comparatively record time compared to uh, other summits that we've had with nuclear powers. You know, this thing called together in only three months is pretty amazing. But uh, so anyway... The president had to be talked out of altering the long-planned and carefully negotiated summit date on the fly, according to two people familiar with preparations for the event. We're here now. Why can't we just do it? According to uh, the sources in the story, uh, Mr. Trump's impatience, coupled with a tense staff-level meeting between the two sides on Sunday, left some aides fearful that the entire summit might be in peril. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, ultimately, and White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders persuaded Trump to stick with the original plan, arguing that the president and his team could use the time to prepare, uh, people familiar with the talks said. The debate, which has not previously been reported, underscores the ad hoc nature of the summit, which was abruptly announced, called off, and then reinstated all before either leader had touched down in Singapore. <clears throat> Uh, Mr. Harry Kazianis, the director of defense studies at the Center for National Interest, described the Singapore extravaganza as 21st century diplomacy with a Trumpian twist. He said, quote, it felt more reality TV than it did in old school 1980s Cold War summit. Trump is going to do it differently. He's going to do it in a media savvy way. The very long handshakes, the long corridor walks. It's all his distinct way. So uh, you you probably were watching some of it. Um, and. Uh, uh, you know, if you weren't watching it live, then, then you were watching it, um, you know, packaged and, and, uh, you know, it was heavily edited. I watched both. I watched it live, you know, at 2 AM, uh, and 3 AM Pacific time. And then I saw how it was put together, uh, on the morning news, uh, on morning Joe, good morning America. And then the evening news, you know, it was, it was nearly by the time we got around to it at 6 PM or, or 6 30 PM when uh, national news is on here in LA, uh, you know, it, in real time, uh, it was, it was nearly, uh, 16 hours old. And, uh, and there was, there was very little, you know, ongoing breaking news, but, um, uh, so, so anyway, as you might understand the, the entire thing nearly fell apart because it was, uh, it was so, you know, hodgepodge 
put together uh, there at the last minute. Um, and so uh, will the next one, and by the way, there will be a next one. Will it be different? Probably different. They, they're they laying the groundwork for follow-on uh, meetings. In the meantime, in the last few days, Secretary of State Pompeo has been uh, conflating a couple different things. When he was he was asked about the North Korean uh, rocket engine, missile engine uh, test facility uh, dismantlement, and he was confusing it with the nuclear test range, the Pungyi Ri uh, nuclear test range, with the which the Koreans a month ago, you know, with great international fanfare, uh, destroyed or claimed to have destroyed by imploding it with explosives. And, and and again, this is because it doesn't have to be used anymore. Um, but so the Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was confusing that at a press conference. Uh, the North Koreans. Uh, according to satellite uh, commercial satellite photos, there is not uh, any kind of satellite test range that they have destroyed. Um, but then again, they they just sort of uh, Kim Jong Un actually just sort of set it as an aside. He didn't say a date by when or anything like that. Um, and the uh, repatriation of American war dead. Uh, well, that's a, sort of an interesting story there uh, because we have thousands of uh, missing. GIs and Marines uh, there in Korea. The Koreans have cooperated over the years, you know, giving those back, uh, but they they use them as ransom. And so what we have done is de-emphasize the importance to us. You know, obviously, unless you're a family member and you and you you know you really want the body of your loved one back, you've gone all this time since 1953, uh, you know, without a body to bury. Uh, but so now the North Koreans have have discovered that we. We put value on that, and so in all likelihood, you'll you'll see them uh, delaying that kind of thing. But uh, anyway, speaking of that, a, uh, a pilot missing since World War II has been buried in Arlington. We'll get to that. And also, the Moscow taxi, was it a terror attack or WTF? Uh, that and more coming up. It is the Dark Secret Place. Brian Houston here until midnight, KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. It is a dark secret place. Brian sits in here until uh, midnight. And and again, uh, Tuesday night at the Hollywood Improv. I will be there for a uh, semi, uh, a bi-weekly uh, show called We the People. It's a, a political comedy show. And I'll be representing the political comedy from the uh, from the right side. From the uh, conservative side. So uh, you can go to Hollywood Improv uh, to their website for more or uh, the pinned tweet at Dark Secret Place. If you're on the Twitter machine, go to my feed at Dark Secret Place and the tweet that stays at the top, the pinned tweet, uh, is a, a link for tickets. It's uh, at uh, 7 p.m. on Tuesday night. So <clears throat> we will see you there at the Hollywood Improv. Um, well, I, I tweeted out also the closed circuit TV of this event, but a taxi in central Moscow, uh, ran down, uh, eight people and you can judge for yourself if it looks intentional or if it looks like the cabbie was just trying to cut a line of traffic. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but, uh, according to Reuters, a taxi drove into a crowd of pedestrians near Moscow's red square on Saturday injuring eight people, including two Mexicans in the city for the uh, World Cup uh, Mexico-Deutschland, uh, the big big uh, game tomorrow. Uh, Russia is hosting the World Cup 2018. Interfax News Agency reported, citing an unnamed source, that the taxi driver had fallen asleep at the wheel and had accidentally pressed the accelerator pedal. Uh, because the, the, the deal is, with all these, you know, the truck and car, uh, you know, uh, running people down things over the past two years, you know, the Berlin Christmas market, uh, the uh, uh, Toulon, or pardon me, the Marseille, uh, July 16th, Bastille Day uh, truck, uh, you know, killing 98 people and all that. We've come to simply assume if a Muslim's behind the wheel and the car runs people down, it must be a uh, an Al-Qaeda terror plot, right? Well, this one just looks really odd because the the cab is in line, uh, a narrow street. There's a there's a cab, and then there's a Mercedes coupe, like a uh, a uh, SLK 500, and then the cabs behind the Mercedes. 
And then all of a sudden it jolts forward and it steers to the right. Uh, and it runs into a sidewalk where it, it hits uh, people. Um, so the incident took place as residents and visiting soccer fans from around the world were thronging the center of Moscow. It's uh, Apparently the weather is very warm right now in Russia. It was a balmy summer evening. Moscow's traffic management authority said the taxi driver had a driver's license. It was issued in Kyrgyzstan, uh, the uh, majority Muslim ex-Soviet republic. The authority uh, that spoke to Reuters cited the driver who was in police custody as saying he had not driven into the crowd on purpose. Uh, initially, the report came out, and we, we did breaking news here on KFI, that a suspected uh, car versus pedestrian terror attack was happening. Um, Moscow Mayor Sergei Sobyanin said on Twitter, quote, there was an unpleas- unpleasant incident with a taxi. The driver lost control of the vehicle. Close quote. The city's police said they had opened a criminal investigation. Uh, the healthcare department issued a statement saying eight people were hurt and had been taken to hospital. The Mexican embassy in Moscow said two Mexican women have been lightly injured. Uh, also among those hurt were a Ukrainian and two Russian citizens. Video of the incident posted on social media showed the yellow Hyundai taxi pull sharply out of a line of stationary traffic, accelerate and mount the narrow pavement which was packed with pedestrians. Uh, the guy the guy went about 20 feet on the sidewalk, uh, bowling over some pedestrians. A bunch of them were, were carried along on the hood of the car. And then um, as the car comes to a halt, uh, a bunch of citizens uh, and passersby begin pounding on the driver's side window. Uh, the guy, apparently, if, if his story is that he fell asleep, and then he woke up. Well, then he woke up sort of idling towards the Mercedes. He turns right, steps on the gas instead of the brake, um, accelerates, runs into the crowd of people. And then now he's got people pounding on his window. And so he figures out what's about to happen, that he's a Muslim from Kyrgyzstan uh, and that he doesn't know if anyone's alive or dead. And so he cracks open in the video. You can see this. He cracks open the driver's door and he just goes running. He just hauls ass. And a bunch of citizens uh, go after him. One guy tries to kick him and uh, and, and misses. Uh, the bystanders tried to pull open the driver's side door. Uh, a witness at the scene told Reuters that some of the people hit were wearing Mexican team colors. Mexico takes on Germany tomorrow. A second witness at the scene told Reuters uh, that, uh, quote, he was pulled out of the vehicle. He ran off, but bystanders apprehended me, or apprehended him. Uh, he was shouting, it wasn't me. Um, so this is uh, what they're saying, that, that apparently some, some uh, visiting Mexicans grabbed him. Uh, a witness said, quote, he ran into a group of Mexicans. There were shouts, moans. He was only stopped because he hit a traffic sign. Someone gave him a punch in the face. He stayed in the car. People came up to him. Uh, it's scary that it was in the center of Moscow, and I was right opposite, uh, according to the, uh, to the uh, witness. Moscow traffic authorities posted on Twitter a copy of what it said was the guy's license. It gave his name as Chinggis Anarbek Uulu, uh, a Kyrgyz citizen and Muslim, born on April 22, 1990. It gave his birthplace in the town of Kochkor Ata in Kyrgyzstan. Uh, an account on Russian social media uh, uh, for someone with the same name uh, was updated two years ago. The last video he posted on his page. Uh, depicted chapter 82 of the Quran, Islam's holy book, which discussed Judgment Day. Uh, there was nothing on the page to suggest any links or sympathies with Islamist groups. So it could be just a uh, very unfortunate uh, coincidence that the guy uh, happened to be a Kyrgyz uh, Muslim um, and that it was just a vehicle accident. Now, again, I have the uh, video on my Twitter feed. You can check it out for yourself. Right off the bat, it it looked more like a traffic accident than a actual terror incident. Because what we've seen with these guys with the trucks is you want to get a big vehicle uh, because human bodies cause damage. I mean, that, that we know from, from the, uh, the Marseille uh, <clears throat> um, truck attack and um, uh, this, the little Hyundai, uh, it uh, not only did the guy not get a head of steam up, but he, he, you know, didn't have the room to go any faster. So uh, it was, of course, the, Russia is on 
on uh, a sharp edge because nothing would embarrass Putin more than a terror uh, incident during the World Cup. He made it through the Sochi Winter Olympics without that happening. Uh, now you got the World Cup happening, and he'll take uh, he'll take violence and gay bashing. He just doesn't want any terrorism. So uh, there's that. All right, when we, when we come back, a pilot missing since World War II has been found and buried. Uh, he's been found dead, by the way, uh, and buried in Arlington. We'll uh, give you those details, those deets, right after this. Brian Sitz here, the Dark Secret Place, KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. Michael Chappé with the news. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. Brian Suits here, the Dark Secret Place. Uh, one last time. Here's a fun fact for you. Um, officially, about 58,000 uh, American servicemen died in the Vietnam War. Officially, about 38,000 died in the Korean War, though that actually includes all service deaths uh, during that period from 19, June 1950 to uh, 1953. So, in other words, if you died in a truck rollover in Germany, in 1952, you are part of the 38,000 who died during the Korean War period. But anyway, um, but here's the fun fact. There are more Americans missing, more unaccounted for Americans from World War II than died in Vietnam uh, and Korea. Of the 400,000 Americans who died in World War II, 73,000 are unaccounted for. Well, uh, that score goes down by one. Second Lieutenant Robert Keown was piloting his P-38 aircraft to an airfield after a mission in 1944 when it crashed into a mountain in Papua New Guinea. Uh, World War II ended without the family knowing what had happened to him, and the military later declared him dead. So in other words, he was out flying by himself, solo, uh, and he was overdue, and he was simply listed as missing in action, presumed dead. Decades later, a villager found human remains in a swampy area near the mountain. Another resident of the Pacific Islands snapped a photo of the rusted wreckage of the warplane. Years after that, with all those puzzle pieces finally assembled, and through the help of genetic testing, remains of the Georgian native and Alabama resident are now back on U.S. soil. Keon was bu- uh, buried yesterday with full honors at Arlington National Cemetery. Nieces and nephews are the closest remaining relatives to attend the funeral. Uh, He grew up near Atlanta in Lawrenceville, Georgia. Uh, His father died in 1937, his mother in 1979. So she never knew what happened to her her son. Uh, His two brothers also died while he was missing. Uh, His uh, youngest brother died in 2015. So they had gone all their lives just knowing that uh, their brother Bob just went missing in World War II in 1944. The funeral was with full military honors, flag-draped coffin, and an honor guard. Uh, he grew up near, uh, like I say, uh, uh, Lawrenceville, Georgia, before moving to the Alabama, northern Alabama city of Scottsboro. He was 24 uh, and a pilot in the U.S. Army Air Forces. Um, his, uh, his remains arrived Thursday at Reagan National Airport. Uh, and a nonprofit contractor that searches for the remains of missing service members called Pacific Rex uh, was there uh, escorting the uh, remains. Keon was among the 73,000 missing until November when DNA testing proved that skeletal remains found in Papua New Guinea were his. That confirmation combined with photos of the wreckage allowed the uh, defense POW MIA accounting agency to remove Keon from the list of the missing, but it's still unclear what happened in the crash. Uh, the Pentagon said Keon was flying one of four aircraft of the 36 fighter squadron on a mission to locate a already missing B-25 bomber when the weather turned bad and the fighters headed to an auxiliary airfield. This is April 16, 1944. Keon was declared missing after the planes failed to return. Uh, two other planes also disappeared. Uh, their pilots remain missing. Um, and this is a uh, uh, sort of an endemic problem uh, with a lot of World War II aviation, both uh, in, in two, two particular places, Alaska and New Guinea. There was a lot of U.S. Uh, and allied aviation happening around New Guinea. And uh, New Guinea not only has uh, mountains high enough to have glaciers uh, on it, but uh, it has some really, really unpredictable, horrible weather, which makes New Guinea very similar to Alaska. 
there are hundreds of missing uh, military aviators who uh, were lost over the state of Alaska. So, so just to give you the scale of this, keep in mind, Alaska is the 49th U.S. state. Um, it, it's been a an uh, American possession since Secretary of State Seward bought it. We've mapped the entire damn thing. You can fit three states of Texas in Alaska, yet there are hundreds of uh, missing military uh, uh, aircraft wrecks from World War II, never mind the hundreds of civilian aircraft wrecks uh, since, and that's in Alaska. So you uh, now you go to the other side of the Pacific to uh, New Guinea, where we had thousands of aircraft flying north and south from uh, Australia uh, to the Philippines and back and forth, and aircraft went missing all the time. And uh, w- one of the biggest problems, one of the biggest issues with New Guinea was the fact that uh, horrible weather, monsoon season, the whole thing um, would sock uh, airfields in with like a 1,000 or 2,000 foot ceiling because of the clouds. But New Guinea is extremely mountainous. And so you hear that story that all the aircraft disappeared. Well, there's no Bermuda Triangle. Uh, it's just that uh, um, New Guinea is, is very, very treacherous flying on a, on a good day. Uh, I, I happen to know someone who worked uh, as a private contractor in New Guinea and moved his entire family there um, and where they, they lived uh, at like 5,000 feet. And, and he would take day trips and hikes up to the glacier that is on Papua New Guinea. And so it was extremely unusual flying, especially for American pilots who had trained, you know, in Texas and then went to the South Pacific thinking that the weather was always good. Uh, the islands were flat and low. Uh, and so that's why uh, the the uh, so-called hump, the uh, China to Burma to India route of transport aircraft, as well as New Guinea, uh, sucked up hundreds of American pilots and planes. Uh, the, the mountains uh, between uh, India and Burma uh, were responsible for hundreds of C-47s and C-46s kissing uh, ridges and mountaintops, and, and they will never be found because they are uninhabited areas at 11,000 feet. Same with the Philippines. Um, pardon me, same with uh, New Guinea uh, and the Philippines for that matter. But New Guinea, super high mountains and, uh, you know, basically rookie aviators, so uh, all right, I'll be back tomorrow for Super Hyperlocal Sunday. Everyone have a happy Father's Day, and we will see you tomorrow. Uh, this is a Dark Secret Place. Uh, thanks to uh, Hector Michael Chappé, and we'll talk to you tomorrow here on KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk.